Kearney Show, which is here every night, Monday through Friday, from 9 to 10, a little bit of uh, edifying or entertaining radio, and uh, live and in real time, as a matter of fact. And I'm Tom Kearney, and tonight I'm going to be talking with Mr. Charles Knight. Mr. Charles Knight, are you there, sir? I'm here, Tom. Good. I never trust this electronic equipment until I actually hear it, hear it working. <laughs> It's all kind of a mystery to me. Mr. Knight, Mr. Charles Knight, we're going to call him Charles or Charlie. We'll, we'll switch back and forth. Um, is the military, uh, I wrote this down so I would get it right. Some, usually I sort of wing it, but uh, I wanted to make sure I got this right. He's curator of military history at the North Carolina Museum of History. And uh, he's come tonight to talk about a new exhibit they've got. And I particularly wanted him to come this week, and I'm glad that he's here. Because next Monday night, about six days from now, is Memorial Day, and I, that's the day set aside to memorialize those people who have served in, in for the American military. Uh, some got through it and some did not, but uh, to commemorate those people. And uh, I, I always feel like on uh, those holidays like that, like the 4th of July and Veterans Day, that you should do something. Get out and read the Declaration of Independence if it's if it's the Fourth of July, or you could go to uh, a cemetery and uh, if, if if they put out the little flags on the graves, which they sometimes do in my hometown of Goldsboro or whatever. And one of the things I think you could do this Memorial Day, which is next Monday, is to go and visit the Museum of History. Now, Charles, don't tell me that the museum is going to be closed next Monday because it. it just no, we will be open. Uh, we're normally closed on Mondays, but we're making an exception on Memorial Day. So we will be I open thought about that as I, I echo your thoughts. Yeah, I thought about that as I was talking. I thought, Tom, you should have checked with Charles before to see if it's going to be open. But that's really good that you're going to be. And as you say, you, the, the North Carolina Museum of History is open. As I remember, because uh, Mr. Ken Howard, who's the executive director, visits us two or three times a year, and he was here recently, and is the one that pointed out the exhibit, and uh, I thought this would be a good thing to memorialize or commemorate uh, Memorial Day, and, and we would have you visit not on Memorial Day, but on the day before that, and point out the, the new exhibit, and, and so that people could, if, if they were going to be in Raleigh and, and uh, uh, feeling uh, patriotic, they could, could go down to the North Carolina Museum of History. As I remember... Let's, let's get some of the housekeeping out of the way here, Charles. Uh, you're at okay. uh, 5 Edenton Street. Does that sound right? Is that is yes. an address for, for the Museum of History? Yes. And that makes it, uh, if you can find the state capitol, you can find the Museum of History because it's just across the street. And at right. one end of the block is the Museum of Science, which is not a bad museum to visit either. And the Museum of History is at the other end. And it's a, it's a pretty good... Uh, place to take the kiddies if you want to teach them a little, teach them a little history. And most of the exhibits, and most of the things that go on, are priced right, which in my world, of course, means that they're free, and you can exactly. you can learn and you can learn a little bit of history, and so on. So it's going to, uh, well, we're, we're going to work with uh, with uh, Charles and discover some things about the museum, about the exhibit, and and then work into it and maybe. Uh, get a little bit of the history and let it be a very small history lesson tonight. But I hope you will think about going to the Museum of History next next Monday. 
or, or any time. This, Charles, as I understand, is, is going to be a permanent exhibit. Is that correct? Uh, it's as permanent as they get. Uh, we're, we're calling it long-term. Uh, long-term. Okay. It is permanent, but yes, uh, it's okay. going to be there for the long haul. Well, the, the, let me ask you, I don't know how long you've been there, uh, but did you have anything to do with the recent exhibit that has retired and this exhibit is taking its place, which was an exhibit uh, dealing with World War I? Uh, did you have anything to do with that? No, I, I've been at the museum for a little bit over four years now, and they were well into the process of uh, designing and developing that one when I came on board. Uh, so uh, I get a lot of the credit for it, although I had nothing to do with it, unfortunately. You're like me, then. My mother's always telling me that when I was a young lad that I did this for her and that for her, and she loved me because of it. And a lot of those things I don't remember doing, but I guess maybe I did, because well, she was my mother after all, and she, she loved me. But in any event, just just lie back or sit back and take the credit and, uh, and yeah, exactly. uh, put some steam into the next exhibit. Now, the, the exhibit, you, unless you and I just kind of have a dialogue, I believe it opened on, what, April 6th? Yeah. And that is, I'm an old history teacher, so you have to watch out for me because I like trivia. And that is a good day because it commemorates something that has to do with the, the wars that you are... Uh, are uh, recognizing in your exhibit. I believe that's exactly. the day that the, so you say it. You say it. Yeah, that was the uh, that was the date that the United States uh, entered World War One. Right. And as a history teacher, something I, I, I and and doing history on the radio a lot, I discovered is that people think of World War One as being four years from 18, 1914 to nineteen eighteen, but the United States was only in the war about the last year and a half. Uh, Right. Uh, Germany and France and England and so on were hammering away at it long before that. But uh, uh, the patience of the American government and President Wilson ran out about the first week in April of 1917 and so on. Right. And we'll, we'll come back. You know, we haven't even given the name of the exhibit. Uh, what is the name of the exhibit? Uh, it's called Answering the Call. Uh, experiences of North Carolina military veterans, 1898 to 1945. Okay. And uh, let's, if you don't mind, let's uh, uh, take each one of them uh, and maybe talk a little bit about some of the history and also about some of the ways that, that you may have chosen to recognize them in your exhibit. Uh, uh, I think about the time I started doing this program, uh, one of the last, uh, which was 30 years ago, one of the last survivors of the Spanish-American War, which is the first war that you recognize passed away. And uh, were there many North Carolinians, that, do you know, who were involved as uh, soldiers in what one author, one book I read a long time ago was entitled That Splendid Little War. And I think the Spanish-American War only lasted about four or five months so little time, as a matter of fact, that a lot of soldiers never actually made it to to Cuba, where most of the battles took place. Right. Yeah, and, uh, uh, there's quite a few North Carolinians. I don't remember the exact number right off the top of my head, but there were uh, three volunteer regiments that were formed from North Carolina, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd uh, North Carolina Infantry. The 1st and 2nd, uh, let me back up, the... Uh, the Army, of course, was uh, segregated at that time, and the 1st the and 2nd North Carolina regiments were white, white regiments, and the 3rd uh, the 
small African-American regiment. And of those three, the first was the only one uh, that ever left the United States. It uh, got down to Cuba. Memory uh, serves right at the tail end of the war. I think they, I think they pulled some occupation duty. Uh, but when the when the fighting in Cuba was over, and and you're right, it, it lasted for not even four months. It uh, began in uh, in April of 1898, and by mid-August of that year, it was it was it was over. Uh, Spain surrendered. Uh, but uh, when the fighting was over there in in Cuba, uh, fighting flared up in one of the secondary theaters of the war over in the Philippines. So a lot of the folks, a lot of the North Carolinians in particular, and quite a few from the the Third North Carolina, the Black Regiment. Uh, they volunteered uh, to go off and fight in the Philippines. So they would uh, join different units to go over into the Philippines. So there were North Carolinians fighting in, in both major theaters uh, of that conflict, uh, some down in, uh, in Cuba and then afterwards during the uh, Philippine-American War over in the Philippines as well. Well, as a matter of fact, I, I just have remembered you were ringing my little lights are going off and bells are ringing that I was going to ask you how long they stayed in the Philippines, but of course a lot, some of them stayed there for a long time because as a result of this war, if I remember correctly, and I will need some of your brain power here, the United States had in, ended up with uh, not the Philippines as a possession because because of our history we were generally against colonies, uh, you know, that all, that, all that 1776 stuff. Uh, but uh, I guess we... we, we uh, took over control of the Philippines as a kind of protectorate, promising them their independence someday, and they finally got it in 1946. But uh, American troops probably occupied it for a right good while. Right, yeah, the, the hostilities there went on. Uh, memory serves for about three or four years before it was declared over. But even when the, the Philippine-American War was, quote, still fighting taking place in, in some of the, the more remote islands, just because there were so many uh, groups that were that were there in the Philippines, you know, that not all of them got along with each other. That that was part of the problem there. Uh, so when the uh, the larger ones, the majority, uh, surrendered uh, to the American forces, there were some still in some of the outlying islands that uh, that were not yet ready to uh, to lay down their arms. So it was a it was a very drawn out uh, conflict, and unfortunately, it's, it's largely overlooked. But there were some very severe fighting that went on over there for a number of years. And and American, uh, there was generally an American governor general or something. I know William Howard Taft, I think, was that at one time, and General MacArthur was had that position at one time. And I believe I read, you know, there's a dark side to all of this stuff that there were what some people would now want to call uh, concentration camps that the Americans actually ran. Uh, uh, we won't talk too much about this tonight, but. Uh, Incarcerating native Filipinos uh, who were a part of the war. So it, you used a good term there. There's not much recognition of this war, and it, it's not one that people know very much about. But uh, who knows? Maybe we'll stir up something, and there'll be people at the library tomorrow wanting to check out books about uh, America and the Philippines. We can hope, can't we? <laughs> and the next thing you'll have to do is an exhibit on America in the Philippines. But I think they got their independence. They were supposed to get it in like 1938 or something, but because of the the, um, the war was coming, they postponed it until 46. And I think they ran their flag up the pole the first time on July the 4th, uh, 1946, choosing an, interesting, right. choosing an interesting day. Now, is there anything, and we need to take a break, uh, 
Well, I'm going to ask you the question and let you think about it. Uh, we'll call this a radio tease. I get to doing my job sometime here, Charles, and I have so much fun that I forget the other part of my job, which is to say uh, that we're going to take a commercial break and we'll be right back. But when we come back, uh, if there's anything particular, exhibits, letters, uh, old weapons, uh, gas masks, whatever, that uh, uh, uniforms that testify to, to, the, uh, to the Spanish-American War. If there is, we can talk about that after we take the break and then come back and, and go on and, and move toward World War One. We'll be back with Charles Knight right after this. For Tuesday night, I believe it is May the 25th, and uh, we are talking with Charles Knight of the North Carolina Museum of History, where he is military curator of military operations or something like that. Anyway, he, he's the one who knows about military things, and they have uh, an exhibit that opened on April 6th that commemorates the experience of North Carolina soldiers. Uh, not the experience necessarily on the battlefield, but the experience in dealing with the reality of war in the Spanish-American War, the First World War, and the Second World War. And uh, he's our guest tonight. Uh, Charles, um, uh, you and I spoke briefly today, and I, I'm just wondering if, there's, if there are any letters that, uh, that Spanish-American War soldiers wrote home or, or uh, pictures that they sent, or did they see Teddy Roosevelt writing up... Uh, whatever hill that he was. But one of the things I remember reading was that the, the war got on so quickly and got over so quickly that the soldiers went to Cuba in the summer dressed in woolen uniforms, and I can't imagine anything any more uncomfortable than that. Right, yeah. There was, there was right in the middle of a transition period in the way of uniform for the Army. They were going from the traditional blue, which they had been in for most of the 19th century, the blue wool, and they're they're switching over to khaki. So you, and uh, so you got uh, some troops that are over there in the in the blue stuff, some that are in the uh, uh, the new the khaki uniform, and it's uh, kind of a uh, learning on the go there, a, a, almost a literal trial by fire there to see uh, uh, what type of uniform would work best. This was one of the uh, one of the first times, if not the first time, uh, that the army had been fighting in a, in a tropical environment. They'd been, of course, in Mexico back in the uh, mid to late 1840s, but it wasn't. It was hot, but it wasn't quite what you would call tropical. Uh, not quite the uh, jungle. Well, I noticed uh, that one of the things that that, that is, is going to be on exhibit. I I studied the the website, and I point that out to our listeners. If you if you look at the website of the North Carolina Museum of History, you can find out not only about this exhibit, but about all the exhibits that are going on there now. But one of the things that is going to be in the exhibit is a Medal of Honor. Uh, Award that was awarded in Veracruz in right. 1914, and I was wondering what and what was that a part of an incursion into Mexico or something like that? The early 20th century is not really what you would call a, a settled uh, time when it comes to Mexican politics. Uh, there were uh, a number—I forget how many—but there were a number of governments in succession down there in Mexico City. It was very unstable, and they'd only last uh, a short while before another party. Uh, had a revolution and, and took power. Uh, so you had uh, one regime after another. Uh, so things were just constantly in flux down there in Mexico City. It's very unsettled there. And the farther out you got, especially in northern parts of Mexico, 
uh, there were a lot of the, uh, the the various factions that are vying for power. One of the one of the largest uh, was uh, under a guy by the name of uh, Pancho Villa, and there. It's a wonder that the United States and Mexico really did not go to war during this time period because there were several incidents that, that very well could have provoked it, one of which was uh, via raided across uh, the border into uh, New Mexico. He raided the town of Columbus, New Mexico, right there on the uh, U.S.-Mexico border, uh, killed, uh, I think it was several dozen, uh, both uh, U.S. civilians as well as uh, soldiers, and retreated back into, the, into Mexico, and President Wilson was not going to stand for that, so he sends uh, Jack Pershing with most of the U.S. Army to pursue him into Mexico. So this is a, an odd situation. There, there's no state of war existing between the two countries, yet the U.S. Army is running all throughout northern Mexico, which is, you know, not earning uh, not earning a lot of uh, friends down there in that region as they're doing this. They uh, ultimately escaped, but... Uh, uh, that created a lot of ill will between the two countries. And then there was another incident at Veracruz, like you mentioned. And right. this one, uh, it, it stems really from something so simple as uh, mis, uh, misinterpreting, uh, uh, the mistranslation from, from English to Spanish. Uh, there was a vessel uh, that put in there at Veracruz, and uh, several of the sailors were accidentally arrested. And here again, this is something that Washington was not going to stand for, uh, Mexican government refused to apologize to the satisfaction of President Wilson, so he told the Navy to respond. So the uh, several ships go down there to, to Veracruz and literally occupy the city. Uh, it's a case of uh, there weren't enough Marines, there was no uh, uh, land forces there with them, so the, the sailors became infantrymen. They had enough uh, long arms in their, uh, in their weapons locker there that they were able to arm several battalions of sailors and send them ashore as infantry. And one of the vessels that was involved in this was the battleship USS New Hampshire. And the uh, the skipper of the New Hampshire, he's a fellow from Wilmington by the name of Edwin Anderson, he was uh, in command of one of these battalions of sailors that goes ashore into Veracruz, and several other of his officers are in command of uh, these makeshift uh, battalions as well. And at the end of the day, the, the Navy seizes Veracruz. There are several dozen medals of honor that are issued for this action. Three of them go to North Carolina sailors. Uh, Edwin Anderson is one of them. Uh, Rufus Johnston is another. And uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Adolphus uh, Staten, Stanton uh, from, I believe, uh, Tarboro, if I'm not mistaken. And all three of them received medals of honor for their actions at Veracruz. And of those three, we have two of their medals of honor on exhibit, Admiral Anderson and
Okay. And uh, the commander of some American troops in Mexico, like 1906 and 1908, was a man named John, you mentioned him earlier, but he's John J. Pershing. He's one of the few six-star generals in American history because he goes on to do a lot of heavy-duty work in World War One. But he was right. called Blackjack Pershing. Do you know why he was called Blackjack? If I'm remembering correctly, it was because he commanded uh, a, a company of one of the uh, Buffalo Soldier units, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes, the, I think one name, and I, I do not mean any disrespect, I'm simply trying to be historically accurate, but they were called Smoke the Yankees, I think. Uh, uh, it was an intrusion into Mexico to try to pay them back for the, I think, for the attack on Columbus, New Mexico, as a matter of fact. But anyway, yeah. And I always assumed it. But recently I have read that he was very racist. He did not like black troops. And so that's another piece of our history that, um, and this was a very racist period in American history. Uh, and uh, it's something that is coming under increasing scrutiny. We will not do that tonight, I don't think. But uh, I, I've have known about that nickname. He was called Blackjack, and I used to ask my students that, and they said, "Well, did he carry a blackjack? You know, the the thing that you hit people over the head with?" And no, that was was not the case. But it gives us some room for some research to do. I was telling my producer that you and I were having too good a time, and we weren't even going to be able to get to the to the to the Great War, World War One, and to World War Two. But uh, uh, what uh, what have what what particular things stand out about your remembrance of what you did with regard to World War One? Do you have gas masks and things like that in trenches and those kind of things? Yeah, we do. Uh, for those of you that remember our uh, World War One exhibit that you mentioned earlier, uh, we had very extensive trench work that was created in the exhibit gallery, and we kept part of that uh, for the uh, for the World War One portion of this exhibit. So you're still going through with the trenches to try and help give you. That, uh, that immersive feel of, of kind of what it was like to be in the trenches. Uh, obviously, uh, missing a lot of the, uh, the elements of the battlefield there, but you can at least uh, see what the trenches might have looked like there. But uh, um, we have it complete with a uh, German bunker. Uh, we do have uh, some weapons. Uh, there's a uh, case of German weapons. Uh, there's a, uh, a German machine gun inside a, a recreated uh, uh, German bunker. Uh, I believe there's a, I'm trying to remember, I, I believe there is a uh, gas mask in there that was used by one of the uh, American pilots. Uh, so yeah, we, we've got uh, we've got your stereotypical uh, World War One stuff, and then we've got uh, a little bit more of uh, uh, some obscure World War One things. But what we try to do with this exhibit is not really focus on the conflict itself and, and tell the story of the conflict. Uh, what I wanted to do was to... to Really look at the human element and, and put a North Carolina face on this uh, on these various time periods in history. So we uh, the the war or the uh, uh, the time period really becomes kind of the backdrop, and we try to bring uh, the the soldiers, sailors, and airmen uh, to the to the forefront there. So you're you're learning about the that period in time, but you're also seeing the role uh, that several dozen uh, North Carolinians that we selected played in there. So you're you're kind of getting uh, uh, the the big picture and the little picture at the same time. At least that that was my that was my hope. Anyway. Well, no, and I I, I think that that is an admirable thing. And in fact, we hear an awful lot about the generals and the admirals and so on. But uh, 
you and I were talking earlier today, I mentioned that uh, one of the best projects I ever saw students work on was one that had to do with what was going on at the home front while the, the soldiers were away and uh, what might have been written down in letters by people at home to the soldiers over there and the soldiers over there back to home and so on and what, what was going on. Do, do in, in dealing with things on the home front and, and down, down to earth, so to speak, do you deal with things that are non-military? I know one of the things that it came out a great deal during World War One was a very, very virulent anti-German uh, attitude in, among the American people. They wanted to change the name of sauerkraut to Liberty Cabbage and stuff like that. And uh, they quit teaching German in, in public schools. And so on. Did, you, did you run across any stuff like that? Sure. Uh, ran across uh, things like that in doing the research. But that's we don't really tell that story uh, so much in the in this exhibit. Uh, it, it might be mentioned elsewhere in, in some of our other exhibits, like our main story of North Carolina exhibit. That that's where okay. we deal more with the home front. Uh, this, this exhibit deals more with the folks in uniform, whether they were at the front, at the battlefield, or or uh, still stateside, whatever. Right. Uh, uh, did a whole lot of. To your knowledge, did a lot of uh, North Carolina troops make it to Europe? Because I know they, they, they spent a lot of time getting them ready to go to become a part of what was called the Expeditionary Force, but it took a while to really build up any numbers of troops in uh, in uh, in Europe. And uh, I noticed that one of the things that you're going to, that's a part of your exhibit is something called the Lafayette Escadrille. Uh, can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, before the United States got involved. There was, of course, uh, quite a few folks over here that, that wanted to get involved in the war somehow. Some would go overseas and, and uh, serve as nurses or whatever. Uh, others wanted a more active role, and they wanted a combat role. Uh, so some would uh, enlist in British units, Canadian units, uh, but there was a very large contingent of them that joined the French Foreign Legion. Uh, that was one of the, uh, the the larger outfits that was accepting uh, non-French folks into into its ranks. And there were quite a few uh, who wanted to be aviators. Uh, and they would uh, form what became known as the Lafayette Escadrille. It was named in honor of uh, General Lafayette of uh, Revolutionary War fame. And those it was an American unit that was serving in the French Army, so it, it's an American, uh, an Anglo, uh, uh, or an American uh, uh, French unit, and they were involved in some of the uh, the early combat there. There were uh, several notable North Carolinians that were in the Lafayette Escadrille. Kiffin Rockwell, uh, he's born in Tennessee but grows up in Asheville, so we claim him as a North Carolinian. Uh, Arthur Blusenthal from, uh, uh, I think, Wilmington. Uh, James McConnell from Carthage were uh, three of the big names, and unfortunately, uh, all three of them uh, did not come back from France. They were all uh, killed while they were uh, in service of the, uh, the French military over there. Rockwell was actually the uh, first American to shoot down a German plane, but he does so again while serving uh, in a French unit. I was going to, I was going to say, um, as you were talking, a little light together coming on, that a lot of the young men who wanted to fly before America joined the war joined the Canadian, well, I, I think William Faulkner actually was in the Canadian Air Force. I don't think he went over there, but a lot of young men who wanted to fly, like the, the guy you just mentioned, joined the Air Forces of uh, the Royal Air Force or the French Air Force and went after the Red Baron, uh, mm-hmm. even though they were Americans, under another flag, so to speak. Yeah, exactly, and uh, that's something that you see, again, repeated in World War II with the uh, the Flying Tigers. Uh, 
people yeah. were there early in the war as well. Yeah. Claire Chennault and his people in in, in China yeah. and so on. And we got we got to put that, put the famous quote in now, uh, because when they uh, when they first got over there, I I I, I heard this one time uh, on a, in a documentary that. Uh, that uh, I think General Pershing was with his lieutenant, who was his aide, and and uh, they got to France, or it may not have been Pershing, but some other uppity up, and he said, uh, they want you to go and say something, young man, so go over there, and, and the guy was, he knew French, and which is why he got dispatched, and the only thing he could say, say from, probably came one of the most famous quotes of the war, because he, he stood up before the French people with the American troops and said, Lafayette, we are here, and so... Uh, that was a part of the Lafayette Escadrille's uh, uh, demonstration. We are talking with Charles Knight, who is military curator for the North Carolina Museum of History, and he has been curating. And he, he and his folks have an exhibit uh, about uh, standing up, I believe. Charles, give me the official title of the Answering the Call. Answering the Call. About, and it's about North Carolinians less about the actual fighting than, than some of the background and some of the ways that they got there and some of the ways that they were trained and, and responses to home and so on, uh, and the circumstances in which they found themselves. But the exhibit opened April 6th, and, and we're, we're, I'm commending it to you for some place to go on Memorial Day, and Charles Knight is telling us about it. And we still... Uh, have uh, World War II to look at. It's, it's wars from the Spanish-American War to World War II, and I know they've worked very hard on dealing with one of the big incidents of World War II, and that is the, the contest for Iwo Jima, and uh, we will talk about that some. Charles will when we come back right after this. We forgot to promote tomorrow night. Dr. Edward Funkhauser is going to be on with an update of this year's necrology which is a list of those people who have passed away but who deserve to be remembered. And Ed does this about once a month, and he will be here tomorrow night on Wednesday night. Thursday night will be a nostalgia night, and Friday night will be a uh, trivia night. And we think that uh, we might do uh, uh, Name That Tune trivia again, Name That Song trivia. And so uh, if you enjoyed last Friday night's out effort, uh, maybe you'll want to tune in this Friday night. We welcome you every, every night, Monday through Friday from 9 until 10, with a little bit of live radio. And tonight's live radio has engaged the learning of Mr. Charles Knight, who is the military curator at the North Carolina Museum of History. And they have a new exhibit which covers uh, um, participation by North Carolina uh, people and soldiers in wars from the Spanish-American War to World War II. But we haven't gotten to World War II yet, which allows me to ask, what what kind of special exhibits or things do you have, Charles, that represent World War II? About half, not quite half of the exhibit is, is devoted to the uh, the World War II years. And, uh, of course, it starts out with uh, Pearl Harbor and the Philippines and goes around uh, to the end of the war. Uh, but there, there's two... Uh, large uh, envir environmental dioramas that we have. One is the uh, Valenza Tunnel on the island of Corregidor in the Philippines, so that covers the uh, uh, the very early part of the war there, uh, parts of December of 1941 and then the first few months of uh, 1942. And then uh, kind of to bookend that, uh, one of the last elements that you see in the exhibit is a recreation of the beach on the island of Iwo Jima. 
You know, I'm I'm glad that you uh, devoted some time. I'm used to read a lot about World War II. When I was a little kid, I got interested in it because my father was the way he ended up in Europe and didn't do much fighting. He was basically a support kind of person. But anyway, it was something that was on my mind because he wasn't where I was. And I read a lot about World War II, and I read a lot about a place called Corregidor and something called the Bataan Death March, and I've always been interested in those. And apparently you devote some time in this exhibit to those two things. Yes. Uh, in the early part of the World War II section there, we cover uh, Corregidor, and that was, uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, just surrender of American uh, personnel in the in U.S. military history. Uh, General MacArthur's Army of American Forces and uh, and Filipino Forces there were uh, all but cut off from the rest of the world by the Japanese, and they were forced to uh, to uh, dig in on the island of Corregidor and the Bataan Peninsula there, and they were able to hold out until uh, uh, April and uh, and May of 1942. And uh, when his forces, well, of course, he was not there with them when they captured uh, President Roosevelt, ordered him to, uh, to get out to lead a, a counteroffensive in the Pacific. So MacArthur goes to Australia, uh, but most of his, uh, his army is left behind, and they would be captured by the Japanese. And of them would endure the Bataan Death March. That was the, the march there from uh, the Bataan Peninsula to Camp O'Donnell. And it was a very horrendous thing in the... Uh, Lots of atrocities took place. I don't think anybody knows with any certainty to this day how many uh, American and uh, Filipino prisoners were, were killed along the way. Uh, Japanese really took no mercy on their captives. Uh, if someone uh, fell down by the wayside, they would, uh, nine times out of ten, they would be executed. And uh, other times they were, uh, they were just executing prisoners. At, and when they got to Camp O'Donnell, uh, things did not improve. Uh, the uh, endured uh, very close to the starvation rations. Uh, they had no contact with the outside world. So in a lot of cases, families who got notification in early 1942 that their loved ones were missing, they were presumed dead. And in, in some cases, it, it was years before they found out otherwise. And one of the stories, one of the individuals that we highlight in that part of the exhibit is uh, a nurse uh, who was captured there uh, at Corregidor. And... Uh, like I say, her family did not know, I think, until mid-1944 that she was still alive. Uh, she was one of uh, one of 12 children, six of whom volunteered uh, to serve during the war, and uh, she endured uh, three-plus years of uh, Japanese captivity. When she finally got out uh, after the war, she was uh, she married one of the uh, one of her fellow captives there. So it's a very tragic, but uh, very tragic story, but it has a happy ending. And one of the other individuals that we highlight. A uh, fellow by the name of uh, uh, David Hardy, uh, he was also captured there. We have some of the items that he took with him on the Bataan Death March on exhibit. Good, and that's well. That's something that doesn't get uh, does not get the uh, press. That the other thing that I'm going to ask you about, and we only have about a minute and a half left, so do watch your watch our time a little bit. But uh, Iwo Jima is the part that usually gets focused on. Uh, because, partly because it was such, such a long and drawn-out thing, and partly because that famous picture that is the part of the Marine Memorial in Washington was taken on Iwo Jima, if I remember correctly. Right. And so uh, there was a, it was a perfectly horrible situation, I think, there, because the Japanese had 
uh, I'm, I'm calling out on a limb here, but uh, it's been a long time since I reviewed my material, but the Japanese had really dug in and constructed a lot of uh, tunnels and everything, and it, and it was a situation where they were not likely to be uh, taken taken out very easily, and, uh, and it just was a really horrible situation. All this is a part of an exhibit, if we can do a little housework here, at the North Carolina Museum of History, and our guest tonight, Charles Knight, is the curator of it, and so you can wave at him or his, his the thought of him when you go to the exhibit, and he had a lot of the work of a lot of his colleagues at the Museum of History, and uh, it, uh, I think, will be a good way to commemorate uh, uh, this coming Memorial Day, which is next weekend, or... And since it's going to be a long-term exhibit, a, a way to, to learn a little bit about America's participation in, in several wars. Charles, thank you so much for joining us tonight and being with us, and I hope everything works yeah. out real well. Yeah, thank you for having me and uh, for giving us uh, uh, some exposure, and uh, I hope that we do uh, see uh, some of your listeners uh, at the museum soon. I hope they'll go in and say, I heard you on the radio. That would be a really nice thing. Thanks, Charles. It would. Yeah, okay. thank you. Take care. And that's it for tonight, tomorrow night, The Necrology with Dr. Funkhauser, and uh, we hope you'll join us then.